What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode two of Citizen Hope. I'm your host, Jess. I am so happy you decided to join me for this episode. I've got a great story to share with you, and I hope it starts your week off on the right foot with a little bit of inspiration and a little bit of hope. Uh, Before we get into the story, though, I want to share just a couple pieces of podcast news and an update on the subject of our first episode, Sojourner Truth. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, go take a listen. So I have a Citizen Hope website coming soon. On that site, you'll be able to access show notes, see photos of the people that I feature every episode, and there'll be an area for you to submit your own stories for a chance to be featured on the podcast. I'll keep you guys posted when that website is live, but right now I would absolutely love it if you followed me on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow the podcast at Citizen Hope Pod One on Twitter and at Citizen Hope Podcast on Instagram. And I'll have this information in the show notes as well. You'll also get episode reminders, photos, and other content on those platforms as well. And I really appreciate your support. Lastly, next week, I'm going to change things up a bit. I'm calling episode three, Everyday Heroes, and I hope to make this kind of episode recurring. It's not going to be the deep dive that I usually do. Instead, it's going to be a roundup of short news reports that feature everyday folks doing extraordinary things. And this is where I would love your help. If you have a story about yourself a friend, a relative, maybe even a pet, right? <laughs> being being a hero, like going above and beyond and just being an amazing person. Send that story to me at citizenhopepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to share your story on the show. Okay, so now a current event related to Sojourner Truth. There's a park in New York named the Donald J. Trump Park, and it's named after him because he donated it to the state in 2006. Since the attack on the Capitol, there's been a strong push to rename that park, and viral petitions are going around suggesting some options for the new name. So Journal Truth is actually one of the most favored suggestions because of her contributions to racial justice causes in the state. So you can sign the petition to rename the Donald J. Trump Park to Sojourner Truth Park on the change.org website. I'll post a link directly to that petition in the show notes. Let's make sure that Sojourner Truth wins this competition. Okay, so let's move on to the subject of today's episode. In case you didn't know, it is Women's History Month. And so in honor of Women's History Month, I'm going to share the absolutely incredible story of Malala Yousafzai. And as I tell her story, you guys, please bear with me because I'm probably going to mispronounce some names and some places. And my apologies in advance if I do. I am honestly trying my best not to absolutely butcher anything. So (laughs) all patience is appreciated. Let me start by setting the stage for you. So Malala's home country is Pakistan. That is in South Asia. Pakistan is bordered by Iran to the west, Afghanistan to the northwest and north, China to the northeast, and India to the east and southeast. The coast of the Arabian Sea forms Pakistan's southern border. Malala's early story focuses on a particular district of Pakistan called the Swat District. This is centered around the upper portion of the Swat River in northern Pakistan, close to the China border. You're going to hear me mention the first and second battles of Swat, and this is the area that I'm talking about. 
Malala was born on July 12, 1997 in Mingora, Pakistan, into a lower middle class family. She's the daughter of Ziauddin Yousafzai and Tor Pakai Yousafzai. Her family is Sunni Muslim of Pashtun ethnicity. So let's define what Pashtun and Sunni Muslim mean so that we're all on the same page. Pashtuns are an Iranian ethnic group. They're the largest ethnic group in Afghanistan, making up about 48% of the country's total population. And they're the second largest ethnic group in Pakistan, making up about 15 to 18% of the population. There are two main sects of the Islamic faith, Sunni and Shia. Each of those sects are further divided, but for this episode, I'm not going to go into those smaller divisions. Sunni is the largest denomination of Islam, followed by about 85 to 90% of the world's Muslims. It comes from the word Sunnah, referring to the behavior of Muhammad. The difference between Sunni and Shia Muslims arose from a disagreement over the succession to Muhammad, and over the years, this disagreement has gained a broader political significance. Okay, so now that we're all on the same page, let's get back to our story. Malala's family didn't have enough money for a hospital birth, and so as a result, she was born at home with the help of neighbors. She was given her first name, Malala, meaning grief-stricken, after Malalai of Maiwand, who is a famous Pashtun poet and warrior woman from southern Afghanistan. Malala's father, Ziodin, played a big role in her life. He is a poet, a school owner, and an educational activist himself, running a chain of private schools known as the Kashal Public School. Ziodin believed at her birth that Malala's life would have great purpose. Malala was educated mostly by her father and became fluent in Pashtu, Urdu, and English. Ziodin referred to his daughter as something entirely special, and he allowed her to stay up at night and talk about politics even after her two brothers had been sent to bed. In 2007, when Malala was 10 years old, the situation in the Swat Valley drastically changed for her family and her community. On October 25th, the Taliban ignited the first battle of SWAT and took control of the SWAT Valley. Girls were banned from attending school and cultural activities like dancing and watching television were prohibited. Suicide attacks were widespread and the group made its opposition to girls' education a cornerstone of its terror campaign. In fact, by the end of 2008, they had destroyed more than 400 schools. In September of 2008, at 11 years old, Malala's father took her to Peshawar to speak at the local press club. There she challenged the Taliban, saying, how dare the Taliban take away my basic right to education? This is where we see the first evidence of Malala's courage, and we get a small taste of who she is to become. In late 2008, the BBC Urdu website wanted to cover the Taliban's growing influence in SWAT and the effect that it was having on Pakistani citizens. They decided to ask a young girl attending school to blog anonymously about her life. Their correspondent in Peshawar had been in touch with a local school teacher who just so happened to be Ziodin Yousafzai. They asked him to find volunteers to author the blog, but he couldn't find any students willing to do it. And this honestly makes so much sense given the climate at the time. The students' families thought this act would be far too dangerous. So finally, Ziodin suggested his own daughter, Malala. 
let's practice some empathy and put ourselves in Malala's shoes for a moment. As Americans, this might be kind of hard to imagine because most of us have never experienced living in a militarized area, but just try your best here. Imagine that a radical militant group has taken over your city. They've banned television, music, girls' education, and women from going shopping. Previously flourishing businesses now close early or they don't open at all, so food and supplies are really hard to come by and whatever is donated is looted. The economy is stalled. Bodies of beheaded policemen are displayed in prominent locations as warnings. Imagine that every time you step outside, you see vehicles containing heavily armed men patrolling the streets, and you are keenly aware that the slightest insult or alleged misdeed could lead to your torture or death. Imagine wondering every night if your loved ones will come home, and never knowing when or where the next bomb would explode. Imagine being awakened by gunfire. Now imagine that you're 11 years old. This was Malala's world at the time. Danger was everywhere, along with the looming threat of punishment or death for the smallest infraction, and yet Malala agreed to author the blog. On January 3rd, 2009, the BBC Urdu posted Malala's first entry under the pseudonym Golmakai. Golmakai is a heroine from a Pashtun folktale. Malala would handwrite notes and then pass them off to a reporter who would scan and email them. Meanwhile, in Mingora, the Pakistani Taliban had set an edict that no girls could attend school after January 15th. The group had already blown up more than 100 girls' schools, and the night before the ban took effect, the air was filled with artillery fire, waking Malala several times. The following day, she read, for the first time, excerpts from her blog that had been published in a local newspaper. One entry read, I had a terrible dream yesterday with military helicopters and the Taliban. I have had such dreams since the launch of the military operation in SWAT. My mother made me breakfast and I went off to school. I was afraid going to school because the Taliban had issued an edict banning all girls from attending schools. Only 11 out of 27 pupils attended the class because of the Pakistani Taliban's edict. My three friends have shifted to Peshawar, Lahore, and Rawalpindi with their families after this edict. Now, the Pakistani government was working really hard at this time to establish some kind of peace with the Taliban. They really wanted their citizens to return to some semblance of normality. And on February 21st, 2009, the Pakistani Taliban leader announced on his FM radio station that he was lifting the ban on women's education and girls would be allowed to attend school until exams were held on March 17th, as long as they wore burqas. Even though the schools were reopened, the Pakistani Taliban were still active in the area. Shelling continued and relief goods that were meant for displaced people were looted. Only two days later, Malala wrote that there was a skirmish between the military and the Taliban and the sounds of mortar shells could be heard. Malala wrote, people are again scared that the peace may not last for long. Some people are saying that the peace agreement is not permanent. It's just a break in fighting. Malala's blog for the BBC ended on March 12, 2009, and her fear that the fragile peace agreement would not last for very long was soon validated. 
In May of 2009, the Pakistani army was engaged again with the Taliban in the Second Battle of Swat. Mingora was evacuated and Malala's family was displaced and separated. Her father went to Peshawar to protest and lobby for support, while Malala was sent into the countryside to live with relatives. That month, after criticizing militants at a press conference, Malala's father received a death threat over the radio by a Taliban commander. Malala was deeply inspired by the activism and bravery of her father, and that summer she dismissed her plan to become a doctor and instead committed to becoming a politician. By early July, with refugee camps filled to capacity, the Prime Minister of Pakistan made the long-awaited announcement that it was safe to return to the Swat Valley. The Pakistani military had pushed the Taliban out of the cities and into the countryside, and so Malala's family was able to reunite and head home. Now, thanks to a New York Times documentary centering on Malala and her time as a refugee during the Second Battle of Swat, she and her family started to gain more and more public attention. Malala was interviewed on the national Pashto language station, AVT Khyber, the Urdu language, Daily Aj, and Canada's Toronto Star. In August of 2009, she appeared for a second time on Capital Talk, and by December of that year, her BBC blogging identity had been revealed. She also appeared on television to publicly advocate for female education. And from 2009 to 2010, she was the chair of the District Child Assembly of the Kapal Kaur Foundation. This foundation is an orphanage that provides free lodging, boarding, and standard education to over 200 orphans. And you guys, while she was doing all of this, let's remember that she was 12 years old. 12. In 2011, Malala trained with local girls empowerment organization, Aware Girls. Her training included how to advise on women's rights and how to empower women to peacefully oppose radicalization through education. That same year, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a South African activist, nominated Malala for the International Children's Peace Prize of the Kids' Rights Foundation. She was the first Pakistani girl to be nominated for the award, and sadly she didn't win it. But this nomination paved the way for many future awards and accolades. In fact, on December 19th of that same year, Prime Minister Yusuf Raza Gilani awarded her the National Peace Award for Youth. At the proceedings in her honor, Malala stated that she was not a member of any political party, but she hoped to found a national party of her own to promote education. At Malala's request, Prime Minister Gilani directed authorities to create an IT campus in the Swat Degree College for Women. He also renamed a secondary school in her honor. With Malala's growing fame and worldwide recognition came incredible danger. And this makes sense, right? Like, remember, she's advocating for everything the Taliban is against. Death threats against her were posted on her Facebook page. They were published in newspapers and even slipped under her door. In a meeting held in the summer of 2012, Taliban leaders unanimously agreed to kill her. So you'll have to let me digress for a second here because I have a big problem with any group or gang like the Taliban. 
If your cause can be so threatened by a teenage girl that you feel you need to kill her, you are not working for the right cause. In fact, if the only reason you're in a position of leadership is because you and your henchmen stick guns in people's faces and threaten them with death if they don't follow you, you are no leader. Your cause is not just, your cause is not right, and you certainly do not have God on your side. A true leader doesn't need to threaten others into submission. Instead, true leaders inspire others to follow them. They don't need violence of any kind. And so I think that we all know that the true leader here is Malala. On October 9th, 2012, 15-year-old Malala was riding a bus with two friends on their way home from school. A masked gunman boarded the bus and demanded to know which girl was Malala. When her friends turned and looked toward her, she was given away. The gunman opened fire, hitting Malala in the left side of her head, and the bullet traveled down her neck. Her two friends were also injured in the attack, although neither seriously. Malala, however, was left in critical condition, and so she was flown to a military hospital in Peshawar. A portion of her skull was removed to treat the swelling in her brain. She required further advanced care, so at that time she was transferred to Birmingham, England. Once she was in the United Kingdom, Malala was taken out of a medically induced coma. She required multiple surgeries, including a surgery to repair a facial nerve to fix the paralyzed left side of her face. But otherwise, she suffered no major brain damage and would eventually recover from her injuries. After years of continuous death threats and the attempt on her life, Malala's family decided to leave Pakistan and make Birmingham, England their home. Sadly, Malala did not see justice for her attempted murder. Let's take a quick detour and talk about what happened to the perpetrators of this crime. The day after the shooting, Pakistan's interior minister stated that the Taliban gunman who shot Malala had been identified. Police named 23-year-old Ataullah Khan, a graduate student in chemistry, as the gunman in the attack. However, Khan could not be found and he remains at large. But by 2014, the Pakistani government announced that they had captured the group responsible for the attack with no mention of Ataullah Khan, whom they'd previously implicated. Ten members of a Taliban faction called Shura were arrested, and in April of 2015, all ten were sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole and release after 25 years. Now, this sounds like some kind of justice, right? But it wasn't, because just two months later in June, it was revealed that eight of the ten men tried for Malala's attack had in fact been secretly acquitted and one of the men who was freed was the mastermind of the attack. The information about the release of these suspects only came to light after the London Daily Mirror attempted to locate the men in prison, and a senior police official stated that the eight men were released because there was not enough evidence to connect them with the attack. So I suppose those so-called convictions were, I don't know, just a ruse to make the world think that justice had been served? It's a disappointing outcome at best, and sadly, it's not the only time that Malala's country will let her down. But let's jump back to Malala's story, and we're going to go back in time just a bit to mid-2013. 
Malala had mostly recovered from her injuries, and she felt even more steadfast and determined in her goal. The attempt on her life served only to bolster her reach and endear her to the heart of global society. On July 12, 2013, which just happened to be her 16th birthday, Malala spoke at the UN to call for worldwide access to education. It was her first public speaking engagement since the attack, and she was leading the first ever youth takeover of the UN with an audience of over 500 young education advocates from around the world. The UN would later dub the event Malala Day. Later that year, Malala and her father launched the Malala Fund, which works to ensure girls around the world have access to 12 years of free, safe, and quality education. All of Malala's activism was about to be recognized in a big way. One of the most prestigious honors a person can receive was bestowed upon Malala in October of 2014 when she was announced as the co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize for her struggle against the suppression of children and young people and for the right of all children to education. Malala received this award at the age of 17, making her the youngest Nobel laureate to date. At the same time as the world is recognizing Malala for her courage and good works, her reception in her beloved Pakistan is mostly negative. In 2015, the All-Pakistan Private Schools Federation banned her autobiography, I Am Malala, in all Pakistani private schools, and the president of that organization released a book titled, I Am Not Malala. The book accuses her of attacking Pakistan's army under the pretense of female education, describes her father as a double agent and a traitor, and denounces the Malala Fund's promotion of secular education. When the president was asked about his book, he claimed that, quote, we are not against her, but the ideology being imposed on us. It wasn't until 2018, five years after the attack on her life, that Malala finally felt safe enough to return for a short visit to Pakistan. Not long after arriving, she met with Prime Minister Shahid Haqqan Abbasi and delivered an emotional speech at his office. Malala told Abbasi, In the last five years, I have always dreamed of coming back to my country. I never wanted to leave. In 2020, Malala graduated from Oxford with a degree in philosophy, politics, and economics. She continues her activism to this day. I'd like to wrap up this episode by reading you some of Malala's speech at the youth takeover of the UN. I think her words here are probably even stronger than her story. So here's some of what she said. There are hundreds of human rights activists and social workers who are not only speaking for human rights, but who are struggling to achieve their goals of education, peace, and equality. Thousands of people have been killed by the terrorists and millions have been injured. I am just one of them. So here I stand, one girl among many. I speak not for myself, but for all girls and boys. I raise up my voice, not so that I can shout, but so those without a voice can be heard, those who have fought for their rights, their right to live in peace, their right to be treated with dignity, their right to equality of opportunity, their right to be educated. Dear friends, 
On the 9th of October, 2012, the Taliban shot me on the left side of my forehead. They shot my friends too. They thought the bullets would silence us, but they failed. And then out of that silence came thousands of voices. The terrorists thought that they would change our aims and stop our ambitions, but nothing changed in my life except this. Weakness, fear, and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage was born. I am the same Malala. My ambitions are the same. My hopes are the same. My dreams are the same. Dear fellows, Today I am focusing on women's rights and girls' education because they are suffering the most. There was a time when women's social activists asked men to stand up for their rights, but this time we will do it ourselves. I am not telling men to step away from speaking for women's rights. Rather, I am focusing on women to be independent to fight for themselves. Dear sisters and brothers, now it's time to speak up. So today, we call upon the world leaders to change their strategic policies in favor of peace and prosperity. We call upon the world leaders that all the peace deals must protect women and children's rights. A deal that goes against the dignity of women and their rights is unacceptable. We call upon all governments to ensure free compulsory education for every child all over the world. We call upon all governments to fight against terrorism and violence, to protect children from brutality and harm. We call upon the developed nations to support the expansion of educational opportunities for girls in the developing world. We call upon all communities to be tolerant, to reject prejudice based on caste, creed, sect, religion, or gender to ensure freedom and equality for women so that they can flourish. We cannot succeed when half of us are held back. We call upon our sisters around the world to be brave, to embrace the strength within themselves and realize their full potential. One child, one teacher, one pen and one book can change the world. Education is the only solution. Education first. If you'd like to learn more about Malala, check out the show notes. I've left a bunch of resources there for you. And don't forget to join me next week for a new kind of episode called Everyday Heroes. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I hope the stories that I share put a big, bright spotlight on the potential that lives in all of us. Check out the show notes for the sources that I use to make each episode. And if you like the podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, I'd be so honored to tell your stories on the show. I'm talking about stories of everyday heroism, courage, and hope. Like, did your great-grandparents write each other for months during the war and it kept their love alive? Did your mom or dad save you from calamity when you were a kid? Did a small act of kindness, like stopping for a stranded motorist, lead to something much greater? Did your pet save your life? These are the stories I would love to share. Email me at citizenhopepodcast at gmail.com for a chance to have your story featured on the show. 
Now I want you to go forth and kick ass because you are amazing. Mm-hmm.